everybody, my name is Remy. Welcome to the For the Love podcast with your host, Jen Hatmaker, my mom. She writes books and speaks to crowds, but she mostly loves talking to amazing people on this podcast every week. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Jen Hatmaker here. Welcome to the show, the For the Love podcast. Super glad to have you today. We just have a really strong series um, that we are in right now, and I'm glad you're here for it. It is called For the Love of Exploring Our Faith, and we have some of the most intelligent, brilliant, wise, and diverse voices in faith um, in our world right now, and I they are they are leading us well, and they are asking good and important questions. And today's guest is no exception. I'm super grateful to welcome to the show today, Lisa Sharon Harper, who I have followed and learned from for years and years and years. So Lisa is just a prolific speaker and writer and an activist in the in the most sincere sense of the term. I mean, from Ferguson to New York to Germany to the White House, South Africa. Her life is very fascinating. She leads trainings and helps mobilize clergy and community leaders around shared ideas for the common good. So she's the founder and the president of Freedom Road, which is an amazing group that uh, takes people on pilgrimages and is dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap in our nation through forums and experiences. It's really fascinating. We're going to talk a little bit about that and have links to it later. She's written several books, um, including her most recent book, The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right, which was recognized as a 2016 book of the year um, and listed by Relevant Magazine as one of the six books that will change the way you see the world. So she's a really interesting and important thinker. She's a columnist. Um, She's an Auburn Theological Seminary Senior Fellow. She's appeared on everything you can imagine. And she's in the ordination process right now with the Evangelical Covenant Church, which we'll also talk about for a second. Um, She is fiery. She is passionate. She is very, very smart, very, very knowledgeable, deeply grounded in scripture and theology and history and truth. And she's going to light us up today. I mean, like, get your pen out um, because you are going to hear some fire today. So help me welcome to the show, Lisa Sharon Harper. Okay, Lisa, welcome to the show. I'm so happy you're here this morning. Jen, thank you so much for having me on. This is actually really awesome. Thank you. it is for me too. You know, I have admired you and respected you and followed you for some time. And we actually finally met face to face. Was it two years ago in Montgomery? December, 2015. So, you know, oh, give yeah. it a few months. Yeah. <laughs> we actually met, um, at the equal justice initiative, yeah. um, with Brian Stevenson in Montgomery, where we kind of learned under him for two days. It was really monumental. I mean, yeah. Uh, we, there were so many interesting people in that room. The people who were there were all leading faith leaders yeah. and activists. So, I mean, I could see how it felt like hundred cause they were all extremely significant influencers totally. in our nation. So it was pretty exciting. Yeah, it was, it was a really powerful room. And, um, and he is, of course, I, I, I don't, I, I'm not, I do not believe that I am being, this is not hyperbole. I find him to be a modern day hero and really special in our generation. And so I was so happy to meet you face to face and Uh watch you do what you do in live action. It's (laughs) you're really something special. And I am so happy to have you on the show specifically kicking off this series, which is exploring our faith. Um, super interested in, and everything you're going to tell us and teach us what you have to say from a from a biblical standpoint specifically about about justice, about equality, about restoration, mm-hmm. um, what the gospel has to say about moving towards shalom, which you've laid out in beautiful manner, not just in your life, but in your work and your writing. Um, and so we're going to move into that. I really love your um, your theology and your teaching on shalom. We're going to get to that. Mm-hmm. Um and how that involves, you know, overcoming a world that has allowed slavery and poverty and racism to flourish. Yeah. Can you talk about, 
you a little bit. Can you tell our listeners um, who you are and what, what moved you toward this path and give us a little bit of background on what has shaped your biblical perspective, what has led you to adopt your current view of the gospel? Um, tell us just, lay everybody, tell everybody a little story about Lisa. My mom um, comes from a long line of people who have been in the United States at least since 1687. We know the first generation to get here got here way before 1687. Um, and they had a child that was born in 1687. Um, uh, and she was half Irish and half African. And um, her yeah. parents were both indentured servants to different people and had an affair. And Maudlin mm. um, McGee and Sambo Game. And Sambo, has, wow. they named him Sambo. I'm sure that wasn't his African name. Hello, somebody. Um, right. And right. and then, um, but but be, they, um, her, she was taken in and raised by Maudlin and her husband as if she was part of their family. Um, and they died. She was then indentured until she was 31, according to the law in Maryland, and then set free. And so since about 1710, 1715 or so, um, that line of our family has been free. And so they, they, wow. yeah, I have goosebumps. I know. That is, that is, I don't feel like I know anybody who has that sort of those, that deep, long history in America like that. And wow. I mean, in black folk, I mean, literally, let me tell you, until yeah. I got connected on ancestry.com, I just like all, everybody else, I couldn't trace my heritage back past the civil war. I knew the name of the right. last adult slave in our family because we actually have a picture of her and we have oral history. Mm -hmm. And my grandmother was raised by her. Yeah. Like, listen, it was, it's wow, that recent, gosh. you know, my grandmother literally was raised yeah. by uh, my, my third great grandmother, Leah Ballard, um, but that was as far back as we could go. And that's on my mom's uh, mom's side. But on her dad's side, that's where this other lineage comes from. On my father's side, wow. um, they were more recent immigrants to America after the annexation of Puerto Rico, where, where his, his mother mm. and father lived. Um, or his rather his where his father lived, um, they they moved to America and they were everybody in our in our and that line of the family was settled in America by 1930 from Puerto Rico. But they okay. they originally came from St. Kitts, Nevis, and really all over the Caribbean because it was so poor people mm. island hopped in order to find work. In fact, I even know right. that that my my great 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 grandmother grandfather and his uncle or sorry, his brother, my great, great, great uncle, um, or great, great, they were in Panama building the Panama Canal, most likely. Um, wow. Yeah. So there's all this, it's incredible actually mm -hmm. um, to see, yeah. to see the connections of history. But my mom was a part of SNCC. She literally was a part of the black power movement. Um, she helped to office mm. to open the office of the student nonviolent coordinating committee in Philadelphia. Yeah. Dated Stokely Carmichael for a minute. <laughs> wow. I'm not Get out of here. Right? So, so this wow. is part of, I really in many ways had no choice. Um, I, I, it, yeah. It's in me, but I became an evangelical. Mm. And so in 1983, right. I walked down. Yeah, that dates me. I know, but whatever. Um, mm. <laughs> um, I have a joke right now <laughs> that, you know, I used to be really, really like proud of my gray hairs. I mean, I never dyed my hair ever. And I vowed I would right. never do it. And, and, um, just recently when I turned 49, I dyed my hair. Yeah. <laughs> Girl, there's no shame. There's no shame in it. But anyway, so, so back in 1983, I walked down the aisle. Like I feel, I literally, I call it like getting, jumping yeah. the broom with Jesus. Yeah. Um, I walked down the aisle at a Sunday evening camp church meeting, totally. gave my life to Jesus, cried at the altar and it was not fake. It was real. I, there was a real transformation that happened there. I'd never yeah. been the same ever. Um, and I, mm. and part of that is because I know I'm not alone. Mm. And I was in, um, our, my mom had remarried and we moved down to Cape May, New Jersey. And in Cape May, I went from Philadelphia, a mostly black city mm. at the time, like I think it was 60 percent black yeah. to my family being the only black family in a five mile radius. Wow. Um, and yeah, we were solidly middle class, had a little fountain in the front of our yard. And mm -hmm. so we actually were targets. Mm. Um, in high school, I had um, uh, two, two boys from our high school, one of them, a friend of mine in seventh grade. 
um, stalked our house every night for a week mm. um, and came by driving by after they got out of work yelling at our house, wow. nigger, go back to Africa, nigger, wow. you know, go back to Africa. And here I was now going to youth group experiencing that and mm. not being able to share it because yeah. I didn't think others would understand it. Totally. So, so here I am, I'm an evangelical, I've, I've given my life to Jesus. Very soon after I was told by my friends, we're like 14, we can't vote, but they told me I have to become a Republican. Uh, and, yes. and so my journey has been one mm-hmm. of, in many ways, um, reconciling this real saving faith mm-hmm. with something that was laid on top of it that has nothing to do with the actual faith right. in Jesus that right. was a mandate of um, a, I believe a twisted and distorted faith that that had political implications, and those political implications um, were not were not in the classic sense political, as in mm-hmm. um, determining how the polis should live according to the right. scripture, the polis, right. the people, but rather a partisan implication. Right. In other words, republicanism equaled evangelicalism, That's and right. it took me about uh, about twenty years to actually. Mm-hmm be set free from that. Um, and it was because I met my first evangelicals who were Democrats. Mm. Um, and I met, I met that guy <laughs> in New York right. city. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, and he was a Nazarene and he was at the Lamb's church of the Nazarene back when it was um, right off Broadway. And I was working there at an off Broadway theater when I was a theater person. That's another mm. part of my story. Yeah. Um, and then uh, when I moved to Los Angeles in, in order to go deeper in my understanding of how to love the poor more effectively. Um, mm-hmm. I was going to church at the LA first church of the Nazarene. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I found out in the midst of this Brzee Institute for urban mission. Um, I found out that Brzee, uh, Phineas F. Brzee, the founder of the church of the Nazarene in the United mm-hmm. States. Um, he, he was famously quoted saying there is no holiness without social holiness. In other wow. words, yeah, right? Like this yeah. is back in the 1800s. That church yeah. formed in the 1890s. And they, they they formed on Skid Row in Los Angeles. Mm. Um, and they had, they had Native American and white people worshiping together. I think they might have even had a couple of black folk, but they definitely had rich and poor worshiping mm. together. And, um, and, and they, they worshiped in this thing called the Glory Barn, literally a big red mm. barn. That is now Skid Row, um, and they had wow. homeless people and the president of USC worshiping together. Wow! Right, so, so rare still. Yeah, I mean, not only are churches racially segregated, but they are absolutely economically segregated yes. too. Yes, yes. So, so, so special and rare. Yeah. So that I mean, that's that that has all been a part of my story. But I would actually say that probably the most significant thing right now is that, that turned the corner for me is I was involved in a Christian ministry on Cal- on a college campus. Um, mm. A national ministry connected to international ministry. And, um, you know, it was the 1990s, and I had been arguing um, that we should return to the four spiritual laws because people had kind of given it up. You know, um, Bill mm-hmm. Hybels had his had his bridge diagram now, and you basically yeah. had this, this onslaught of people who were trying to communicate the good news of the gospel. Mm-hmm. So everybody's trying to reduce it so that somebody can see it in a, in a blink. Sure. But I was saying, we have to get back to the four spiritual laws. This is what's real, because I was in Campus Crusade back in the day, right? Like mm, an undergrad, right? a leader. And, but then I went on a pilgrimage and mm. that pilgrimage changed my life. Where'd you go? We did a, a, a four week pilgrimage mm. through the American South. We retraced the Cherokee Trail of Tears for the wow, first two weeks. Powerful. And then we retraced the African experience in America for the second two weeks from mm. slavery through civil rights. Mm. And I'll tell you what, my family, Leah Ballard, Mm-hmm. In particular, and and others lived that history. Leah yeah. was enslaved until the end of the Civil War, mm-hmm. um, or until the Emancipation Proclamation. She was enslaved down in South Carolina. Wow! Um, and uh, she had seventeen children. Wow! Gosh. Which I, you know, I didn't even have a category for this back yeah. then, but now I understand she was most likely what they call a breeder. Yeah. In other words, oh, man. her job on the plantation to breed money mm. for her master. Yeah. 
And, you know, the thing is, she we know she had 17 children because that's Leah raised my grandmother and that's what my mm. grandmother told us. Um, so we have it right out of her mouth. Mm. But after the Civil War, she only had five children. Wow. So yeah. Most of her children were likely sold right. all over the South. And you know what? I can't quit thinking about as you're telling this, that just wasn't that long ago. I mean, she raised no. your grandmother. That was That's just right. was just two generations ago. That was such That's recent right. history. Um, you know, there's sort of as we whitewash the atrocities of our own American narrative, the, yeah. there's this um, real, very real um, inclination to to push it in storytelling so far backwards. It's just the, yes. it was so long ago. We we're so yeah. beyond it, which is so incredibly yeah. far removed yeah, no. from the roots and the, and the, the evil of slavery. I think when a lot of white people specifically want to push we're you know, we're a post-racial mm-hmm. society. It's just simply impossible to conceive of a nation that spent 300 years in, in racism and slavery and subjugation and inequality to imagine that in 60 years yeah. <laughs> we've, we've, it's fixed, you know, we're, <laughs> it's, a, we're, it's done. We're over it. It's just, um, I I remember the first teacher that said that to my ears and it was so incredibly profound that we can look to our parents and our grandparents and certainly our great grandparents and see it alive and well. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, look at this. Okay. So I just came literally this last weekend, I was on the MLK pilgrimage with faith and politics Institute and Mm -hmm. with John Lewis it's in, in commemoration of the 50th anniversary of the garbage workers strike and Mm -hmm. the death of Dr. King. So we're there and we're in Selma now and we're at the six, I'm sorry, Birmingham, we're at the 16th street Baptist church. And we, I learned for the very first time, and I've been there several times, but I never realized this, that in Alabama, they outlawed um, black churches having spires on the tops of their churches because they didn't want them to look beautiful. Wow. So when you, never when you see, yeah. So when you go into Alabama and you mm. see all these historic churches, black churches, historic black churches, and they don't have spires, they, they look like they were built to have spires. But mm. the thing is, they were all removed. All the spires were removed at one point. And so now they kind of look stunted. And hmm. that, it's so the thing is, the subjugation yeah. was that detailed. Mm, that's right. It was in every mm. single aspect of life. And it wasn't not, this is the thing that got, that got me this last weekend. It wasn't neutral. It wasn't just yeah. white folks living their lives and, you know, black folks being uh-huh. impoverished. Because, well, they just didn't, it was you know, intentional. they just needed a leg up that they, did, yeah. they didn't get when they came out of slavery and so whatever. No, yeah. the white establishment in the, in the segregated South and in the North, right. actually, it wasn't, it wasn't just the South, but it was, it was actually intentional. Yeah. There yeah. was an intentional pushing down, yes. crushing even mm. of the image of God in and people of African descent. But it wasn't, I don't think it was because they hated black people. Mm. I think it was because they wanted and needed to, in their own mind, needed to maintain a sense of their own supremacy. Of course. I mean, right? that, so, that's, that's its root. That is the root. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That is the root of the, of the construct itself mm. of race. Um, and that has really um, helped. It's in many ways has helped me to transform my understanding of even the good news of the gospel. Um, mm-hmm. When I came off of that pilgrimage in 2003 um, and came to the end of it and asked myself, could I go up? Could I knock on my great, great, great grandmother, mm-hmm. Leah Ballard's door one night, you know, after she had been raped for maybe the fifth time that day, yeah. because that was her job was to get mm-hmm. raped. Um, and, and not just by other enslaved Africans, African men mm-hmm. who they forced to rape her, but also by the master and by right. his, his, um, white help, you know, yes. and also by his, by his sons and, and also by his company who came mm-hmm. through in order to relieve themselves. That was, that was, that was her job. Right. So she was sex trafficked, in other words. Right. So that's, that's right. what we're talking yeah. about. Right. And so so could I go up to her and could I knock on her door and could I say, great, 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 great grandmother Leah Ballard, I have good news for you. You God loves you and has a wonderful plan for mm. your life. Mm, that's really <laughs> powerful. 
Could I go up to her and could I say, but you are sinful and therefore separated from God. Oh man. But Jesus has died to pay the penalty for your sin. Yes. So all you need to do is to pray this little prayer Uh at the back of the gold booklet, which of course Uh I was arguing for right at the time. Mm. And then you would get to go to heaven. I I had to realize Mm. and come to the realization that the answer to that question was no. Yeah. No, she would not jump for joy. It would not be received as good news. Right. And that, that, Jen, that rocked me because as an evangelical, the gospel is the center of my universe. Yes. Like the good news of Jesus literally is what set me free. So what if my, if it's not good enough Mm. for my own family, that's right. If it's not good enough for those who need good news the most, yeah, then Maybe one of two things. Maybe it's not good news at all. Right. Or maybe my understanding of the good news of Jesus is not actually Jesus's understanding of the good news. That's so interesting and fascinating, kind of a gut punch. Um, And I see this right now in the um, evangelical impulse um, to resist activism to resist um, those of us who are crying for justice in ways that make them uncomfortable. And the the resistance is packaged that sounds something like, you know what, we just need to dial it into Jesus, right? Like, ah! you know what I mean? Let's just, yeah! is, Jesus is all we should really be preaching. And oh. don't get down in the weeds here when Jesus is the answer. And it's a... Um, it's a silencer um, it, because wanna... it's it's packaged as as faithful and it's packaged yeah. as as pious. But yeah. the truth is, what you are explaining is it literally leaves behind the gospel. You you have you are leaves... required to leave it behind. It leaves Jesus behind. Even Paul had his moment where he he realized that that when when Paul stated in Galatians three twenty seven to twenty nine, when he stated when he actually said. This is what the baptism of Jesus is all about. Mm. If you are baptized in Christ, there is no longer Jew nor Greek. There is no longer male nor female. There is no longer slave nor free. If you're human, you have the image of God. If you have the image of God, you're human. So if you're human, you have the image of God. And if you have the image of God, according to the text, you are called by God and created with the capacity to exercise dominion to exercise stewardship of the world, to make choices that impact the world. In other words, you are not only free, but you are called to lead the world. So at the, at the heart of what it means to be human is to be called to exercise dominion. So what Paul does in, in Galatians 3, 27 to 29, is what he says is, when you are baptized in Christ, you are now cleaned of the lenses of empire. And now you see all as God sees them called to exercise dominion in the world, not subjugated by human hierarchy. And that changes everything. And I believe personally what I've come to believe. So after, after that, that pilgrimage, I was rocked. I literally, literally was de- like, I believe clinically depressed yeah. for like a year. Wow. Um, because again, cause my whole worldview was rocked. Of I, course. I, I didn't know which way was up or down because all of a sudden my understanding of the gospel right. fell mute. Yes. It had nothing to say to my own family. That's right. So it, it led hmm. me to go deep into Genesis. And I tell you, sister, I've been living in Genesis now for, what is it now? 15 years. Hmm. I've been living in Genesis 1 through 14, and then all the implications throughout the whole rest of Scripture. And what I've learned in that is that on the first page of the Bible, we see the kingdom of God. On the first page of the Bible, we see what it looks like when God reigns. And what it looks like when God reigns, God looks at the end of the day and says, this is very good, right? God says, this is, and that those words, very good, are tov me'od. And they are spoken usually um, in the context of epic Hebrew poetry, tov in particular. That's where it appears is in epic Hebrew poetry. And and it's a connector of thoughts. It's a connector of breaths, literally as that's how it functions in the actual text. But also the Hebrews would have understood goodness to exist 
between things, hmm. not in the thing itself. It's the mm-hmm. Greeks that understood perfection mm. or goodness to exist inside the thing. Yes. So it was a Greek project to become perfect or I to see. find the perfect chair or to find the perfectly level stage or, you know, so they were looking at things being perfect and that was their project. That was not the Hebrew project. And we do not have a Greek faith. We have a Hebrew faith. Our faith mm-hmm. comes from the Hebrews. So what did the Hebrews believe? They believed the goodness existed between things. Oh, and that word may owed. Yeah, right, right. Mm-hmm. So that word may owed actually means very, but even more than that, it means abundant, forceful. Um, you could even, one could even argue violent, violently good, mm. abundantly, overflowingly good, crazy, mm. crazy, crazy good, I like to say, yeah. right? So what God was saying at the end of the sixth day then mm. And what God's dominion looks like is the radical wellness of all relationships in creation. That's great. Right? That we -hmm. we all blesses all in God's creation. And there is no cursing. There's none. And 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 the relationships, the relationship between humanity and God is tov me'od. It is abundantly good. It's forcefully good, violently yes. good. You know, and then the relationship between men and women is violently good. Mm. And the relationship between humanity and the rest of creation is forcefully good. And the Mm. relationship between all of creation and the way things work, the systems that govern us is forcefully good. good. Right. So so that's what God's reign looks like. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. When you look around, it looks like all blessing Oh, mm. Mm. I'm, I'm like, I don't know if you can hear me taking notes. It's like, ah. I'm in church. I'm in church. You're my pastor. I'm taking notes ah. on the back of the, of the bulletin. Oh my um, gosh. That's really beautiful. And it, it yeah. brings me back to our original starting point, which yeah. is the departure from all blesses all. Yeah. It's so, um, it's so evil and it's so dark. It's so unlike God. It is so broken apart from the intent of the gospel. Um, it is, it is the opposite of good. It is the opposite of Jesus. And so in like, if, if we're following just the, the, the theological fault line, Mm -hmm. then it would, it would seem one would think just even logically, if mm-hmm. you can just follow um, theological logic yeah. that um, that these broken systems of poverty um, and of, of tyranny and of racism um, and of exploitation and a power differential would would so deeply offend the, the soul of the believer mm-hmm. um, that we would really honestly have no choice but to spend our lives to to use our faith communities mm-hmm. um as as advocates to write what's what's wrong right to to say these this there's really no other way for us to a understand the gospel mm-hmm. and b respond to it All right, guys, quick break to tell you about something I'm super excited about. So listen, if you're feeling like you spend too much, eat too much, own too much, waste too much, you might want to check out the seven experiment video series and books I developed and take the seven week challenge against excess that literally changed our family's lives permanently. And hey, if you'll use the code podcast at checkout, you'll get $10 off any package. And if you already have the book, and some of you do, we have a package for you too, and the code still counts. You can find out more about all of this at the7experiment.com. I'm curious, I would love your perspective on why why you think, and this is not an easy answer or a short one, I know, but specifically in, in traditional evangelical settings, why that church shies so drastically away from these social issues that other like non-faith-based orgs are running into, right? They're, they're running into it with their eyes wide open, with their ears wide open. And yet here we see a large portion of the church. And obviously I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm generalizing, I'm painting with too wide a brush. There are plenty of churches that are, you know, lifted the veil of these sort of areas and try, and try to make a difference and run in where everybody else is running out. But overall, it seems 
seems like we are far more comfortable in our faith settings and our churches and our communities, um, pushing that aside and saying, that's not what we're here for, right? That's, that's not the, that's not the brunt of our gospel. What, what is, why, why and how, and how have we gotten to that place where somebody in absolute honesty could say, let's not make this political, right? We're here to preach Jesus. And these social issues are political, not gospel based. How have we gotten so far? Well, I think that actually it goes back to our founding as a as a faith group, right? So evangelicals were founded in the um, 16th, well, 1600s, all the way up through the the early 1800s. And so in Europe, it was the 1600s. And and interestingly, I think that we had an understanding of the kingdom of God then. And it's funny because it's evangelicalism in Europe. Um, My denomination is the Evangelical Covenant Church, a Swedish, an originally Swedish denomination. And my church in particular, the ECC, Evangelical Covenant Church, they believed in house churches. You know, they they mm. so they weren't they were like not even just they they didn't want to have a state based church. Um, they didn't want to have a hierarchical like hierarchical church where the people at the top knew God and people on the bottom just had to follow. No, they wanted to make sure that everybody had relationship with Scripture. That is a democratization of power, right there. So they taught people to read, and they had house fathers. They they had um, the house fathers as in. Um, people who were like the Bible study leader, basically, right? Like early Bible study leaders. This is now, this is the 1600s, 1700s. But when it came to America, it came in the midst of the abolitionist movement. And it was evangelicals that led that movement in Europe with Wilberforce and in America with Charles Finney. And it turns out Jonathan Edwards II, Jr., he actually preached a sermon back in 1791 for a suffragist group. um, Wow. In 1791. Early, Mm -hmm. like early adopter of both um, suffragism, in other words, women's women's empowerment and abolition. But he preached a sermon um, against slavery back then. So basically, you get you get to the the 1800s and you have Charles Finney, who creates the the altar call and in the midst of the Second Great Awakening. And he's he's calling people to the altar um, because he actually says you cannot be. Um, under the reign of God, you cannot say you're a part of the under the governance of God, the kingdom of God, and um, and and believe in slavery. And the reason I believe he thought mm-hmm. that was because you can't say you're under the reign of God while you are simultaneously crushing the image of mm-hmm. God on earth. You can't do it. That's good. So right. this is this is the thing that was really fundamental for me. And, and this this revelation came to me while standing on the stage in South Africa, speaking for the Justice mm. Conference there um, last year. And actually, literally a year ago, um, I mm. was I was standing on the stage and it hit me. The ancients thought of the image of the king as being a marker of where that king ruled. So like Jesus Mm. is in the temple with his, um, you know, going back and forth with the Sadducees, Pharisees and scribes, and they're trying to entrap him. And they say, yo, 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 Jesus, you know, should we be paying taxes? Mm. And so, and that's like like my Philly coming out there, you know, I like it. Yes. (laughs) The Philly version. And then Jesus says to them, what? He says, you know, go get me a coin. And so they do. And they say, he says, whose icon is on the coin. That word icon is the same word. It's the Greek version of the Hebrew word salem, which is the word that's used in Genesis 1, 26, when he says, let us make humankind in our salem. So he says, whose salem, if you're going to talk Hebrew, is on the coin. And they, they say, uh, Caesar. And he says, okay, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's. In other words, because Caesar's image is on that coin. Caesar owns the coin. It is Caesar's dominion. Mm. And then what does he say? He says, but give to God what is God's. Well, what is God's? We belong Mm. to God because we bear the image of God. We have the salem of God imprinted on us. Now get this. Like I said, the ancients thought of the image of the king as being a marker of where that king ruled. We were created to be markers of where God ruled. 
not where each other ruled and where that marker flourishes, right? Where you see images of the king at the entrance of the city and on the coins and they're, they're all doing well. You know that that, the kingdom is flourishing, but where you see Mm. images of the king crushed, maligned, toppled, twisted, Mm. melted down, then you know that there is war against that king happening in that kingdom or against that kingdom. Because the image of the king is being crushed. Well, look at it this way. I think that on the first page of Genesis, where the where either the priests or Moses are coming out of subjugation, and they declare that all humanity is made in the image of God, and they say, and let them have dominion, in case you don't get it, let them exercise agency, let them be freed from oppression, let them actually steward the world. What they're saying is... The image of God is a marker of where God rules. And the thing is, where those images are crushed, where people's capacity to exercise dominion is limited, distorted, ignored, you are also limiting, distorting, crushing the image of God on earth and therefore declaring war against the kingdom of God. So what would it look like for us to lay down our arms against God? You see, I don't think that we mean to declare war against God. Not, I mean, even evangelicals who voted in someone who absolutely is declaring war against the image of God, um, you know, um, every day. And, and, and the way that we are making decisions about how the polis will live together, this current president believes in human hierarchy and is legislating according to human hierarchy. He believes that only some people were called to exercise dominion in this world. And those people are Americans, and in particular, white Americans, in particular, Americans of Northern European um, um, birth and, um, and, and those who are grafted into that, that, that by through the racial construct called white and and it's not real. I mean, race is not a real thing. It's not, you'll never, in, in ancestry DNA, there's never a race that comes out white. You come out with different ethnic heritage. You come out having come from different people groups around the world. But whiteness does not exist except for the power that we give it. And what we gave it back at the founding of our nation, literally in 1787, when we declared that people of African descent would only be three-fifths of a human being, and then three years later in 1790, declared that only white men of good character, in other words, Christian, could become naturalized citizens of the United States. In other words, only white men could could exercise dominion on this land because that's what naturalization does. It gives the right of the vote. It gives the right to own property, right? So so that that is that was something a way that we declared in the very beginning of our nation that we would that we believe and will now legislate according to human hierarchy. But so the gospel, I believe what the gospel has to say to that is that that, friends, is a lie. We have legislated and, and crafted our world around a spiritual lie. And the good news of the gospel, if I were now to go to my third grade grand, great-grandmother, Leah, and I would say, Leah, I have great news for you. You know what I would say? This is what I would say. Leah, the king of the kingdom of God pushed through time and space and came to earth in order to confront the kingdoms of men that are hell-bent on crushing the image of God on earth. And that includes in you. Jesus came to set you free. And here's the thing. I believe that Jesus also came to set those who are pressed by the hierarchies of human belonging, including those who benefit from them, from the oppression of those hierarchies. Because um, the, the other thing that the Genesis, the, the fourth word in Genesis that I like to bring out is the word likeness. It's in the Hebrew, it's the word demuth. We are made in the likeness of God, but we are not God. 
And I think that one of the things that human hierarchy does is it not only does it create a human hierarchy of human belonging, but I think that what we've done is we've actually set um, people of European descent up on, on such a high pedestal that actually what they've tried to do is to become God. They have not just been okay with being human. They have, they've now tried to become God. In other words, only God can speak. And so something is, but in, in America, people who were deemed white by the state spoke according to the law and said that people of African descent were three-fifths of a human being, and so it was by the law. And they spoke and said that um, that certain people groups uh, were not fully human, and so it was. And, and after the Civil War, they spoke and said that black people could be picked up on a park bench for looking, I mean, for, because they sat for too long and thrown in jail. And that jail was the same plantation that they just got freed from. Um, and they now had to work the land and they threw away the paper so they would never know exactly when this person came in. So they would never have to set them free. And, and, and they were able to do that because they believed, they actually believed the lie that not only that black people were people of African descent were quote black, but now blackness meant less than human, right? And whiteness means divine, divinely called by God to steward the world. You see, you see the lie. Now, if you look at your neighbor, if you look at the person, if you look at the next homeless person you meet on the street, and if you look at, if you look at a woman in a line to receive food stamps or, or to, to, to buy food at the supermarket and they're using um, they're using a card, you know, a food stamp card. Or if you look at someone, um, if you look at an immigrant who is now in danger of being deported and you and you look for the image of God in behind their eyes because it's there and you understand that the presence of that image of God means that they are called by God to exercise dominion in the world, then you can no longer see them as being created to drive your taxi. You can no longer see them as being created to mow your lawn or being created um, being created to be controlled and confined in prisons and away from you or in ghettos. You understand then that it's human systems that have been at war with the kingdom of God, crushing the image of God. And that's why we show up. That's why I got arrested in Ferguson. That's why I got arrested on the steps of the Supreme Court fighting for against the death penalty, because the death penalty has an, uh, an, an inequitable application uh, because of the court system and the biases that appear in juries and, and, and judges um, being applied to people of African descent because people believe less than human. And that's why right. um, I... I Yes. Uh, fasted for 22 days and lost 30 pounds in 22 days in in, in 2013 mm -hmm. with the fast for families um, uh, for immigration reform. It's because our laws are crushing the image of God. That's right, because we've built them now, not just into our psyche, but into our systems, um, which is your point that by our words, we are bringing it to pass um, because words in a piece of legislation come to pass. And they, they, they have real bearing on the lives of people. And I, I really, I keep thinking while you're talking, I keep thinking about what your friend said is who benefits and inversely, which is just the exact same question, but it's reverse is who has the most to lose um, by challenging these systems, which is why I think even intrinsically, I, I think honestly, for in most cases, even subconsciously, people that are in the dominant group, um, that, that are in the, po the power group, um, are, are less likely to engage all these injustices and all this broken gospel, um, because, um, they have more to lose. So it's just that simple. And we know it deeply. And, and then not only do we sense that that might absolutely fundamentally alter our world, which it would, um, but we've inoculated ourselves um, from that tension and from that um, that deep burden and, um, and and movement of God by staying 
very largely segregated and very homogenous groups. In my experience, some of the earliest steps to breaking down those lies um, and allowing the Holy Spirit to change our minds, like literally change our minds and hearts, is proximity. Um, that when all of a sudden our personal world becomes in- less homogenous, less same, 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 we invite in new neighbors. We listen to new voices. We start paying attention to different sorts of leaders. We say, tell me your story. Um, cu- let's break bread around a table. Uh, those worldviews, they start to crumble. You can't help it. You cannot help it because it's, as you said, you begin to see the image of God in somebody else. Um, And so I I would like your thoughts um, as a pastor. How do we move away from that and into something that looks like Genesis 1? So two things. One, Michael Emerson and Christian Smith in their book, Divided by Faith, um, they, they said they only had one very hopeful sentence in that entire book. <laughs> this is, it's a really, really hard book to get to get mm. through because it's it really tells the truth. I mean, what they found was that because of the very nature of the white church in America, and especially the white evangelical church, in other words, the structure of it, um, the, yeah. the way that it works, um, the insulation of it, um, uh, even mm. even the theology of it, the, 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 the there are some things that actually hinder evangelicals' ability to see and appreciate the 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 impact that systems and structures can have on whole people groups. And then mm. you create an echo chamber when you only surround yourself with yourself, basically people who are right. like you, same 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 class, same economic status, same same race, same social location. Then you kind of get an mm. echo chamber and you start thinking and, and then interpreting the scripture all in the same way yeah. without, without respect to other people's points of view. Mm. Um, and so... So what they say, their one piece of good news in that entire book was that the one thing they saw that actually broadened evangelicals, white evangelicals worldview was to be immersed, Hmm. to be immersed in community that is not their own. And in particular, what they said was African-American community Hmm. to immerse yourself. Now, not everybody can just pick up and move into a black neighborhood, nor do we actually even want that Hmm. because what that does is that immediately brings gentrification. What, What they say is that, and as much as people of, of European descent who have been deemed white in the U.S. can immerse themselves in the stories, in the communities of, of the other, and in particular African-American communities, then their, their worldview, their blinders will fall mm-hmm. off. Their worldview will expand. Yeah. They, will, they will then have their own worldview challenged. Yes. And that's one of the reasons why Freedom Road, the, the group that I, I founded, um, it's a consulting group, why we actually are so dedicated to pilgrimage. Mm. It's not only because, although a large part of it is because I was so deeply right. transformed by pilgrimage, but it's also because it literally is one of the yes. main things that not only Michael Emerson and Christian Smith, sociologists, but also psychologists have actually named that being immersed in the other, it actually helps us to see differently. Mm. So pilgrimage gives the opportunity to be immersed in the story of the other while also if, if the pilgrimage is done right being immersed in the community of the other because in uh, freedom road pilgrimages one of our our um big things is that we we work hard to make it so that each pilgrimage is is at least half people of color if not more than half people of color on that bus so that um Everybody has an opportunity to actually be immersed um, in the in the community of the other, and That's our good. stories we tell each other, as well as the places we see, the the land we stand on, where things happened and decisions were made according to the mm. the rules of human hierarchy. It all changes right. us, a- along with the scripture. We soak in the scripture. We soak in and the the biblical concept of shalom, asking what are the implications of of what we're seeing here on our understanding of the gospel. So you know, mm. freedom. Wrote it's a one-week pilgrimage through the story of the control and confinement of African of people of African descent on U.S. soil, hmm. and um, and that's from from slavery through Jim Crow and mass incarceration to police current day police brutality, and hmm. the parallel development of the political construct of whiteness. So we're going to start at EJI, interestingly enough, in Montgomery. Wow, love it. And then we're going to move to Mississippi where we will retrace Emmett Till's last day 
alive. Mm. Um, wow. And then we'll go to Memphis, where we will investigate the garbage workers strike, which happened because mm. of the control and confinement of black bodies. They wouldn't allow black men to go inside during a rainstorm and, and, and eat their lunch. They had to eat their lunch out mm. in the back of the of the garbage truck. And there was a malfunction in the, ga- the garbage truck began to operate while they were sitting in the back and they got crushed. And that's what actually launched the garbage worker strike that brought Dr. King to Memphis, which is where he was assassinated. Um, And then Mm. from there, we're going to go to Ferguson, where we will um, talk with the co-chair of the Ferguson Commission, Starsky Wilson, and go and stand on the ground where Michael Brown lost his life. Um, Mm. And and also talk with people like Bob Zellner, who was a white member of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in Mississippi Mm. with um, Mecker Evers and um, and, and just an incredible, incredible story that he has. Um, And so we... This is this is this is part of what it means. I think this is part of our discipleship um, today. What it means mm. to be a Jesus follower is right. to follow Jesus into the deconstruction of mm. those things that have uh, constructed and reinforced human hierarchy. To begin to see yes. differently. And isn't it funny that Jesus Himself was right. a brown man? From, from an mm. oppressed people, oppressed right. by European empire. Mm. You see yeah. that? Do you see that? Every single person who wrote any word was writing from that mm. location of oppression to That's people right. who were oppressed, for people who were oppressed. So what I'm saying is that we have to interrogate. We have to interrogate not just the scripture, because I actually believe mm. the scripture is holy, but I think we need to interrogate our read yes. of the scripture and our the the approach that we've been taking. Uh, my uh, my friend Bob Eckblatt, who wrote the book um, "Reading Reading the Bible with mm. the Damned," um, he wrote he wrote a book really about his experience of doing Bible study with people who are imprisoned up in Washington, and he learns a lot by doing Bible study with the imprisoned, because. What he says Mm -hmm. is that they actually see more in scripture than he ever would because they are reading the scripture from the social location Mm -hmm. of the ones who wrote it. That's pretty powerful. It is, right? Mm -hmm. So, so, I mean, I just, I think that if we actually believe that the scripture is our authority, Mm -hmm. then we will actually treat it with the reverence it deserves. That's right. And to read it from the social location of the ones who wrote it. That's good. With its context intact, Mm -hmm. all of it, the political context, the historical and the cultural context. What's so tricky about that is in our culture, um, what you find is that a large portion um, of evangelicals have painted that community, the evangelical community, as the ones who are being oppressed, right? We see that language a lot. Um, we are on the we are on the ropes. Everybody is against us. We are uh, marginalized in our culture. You know that you. I mean, this is common language. Like um, nobody's listening to us, and 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 we are the ones who are having to fight for our rights. And so, with a simple channel change there, um, to imagine that these largely affluent. And I mean affluent in in the sense of the whole world. I mean, in the sense of the whole world, we are Um, affluent, white, privileged Christians. If you can convince your own self that you are the one that is oppressed, then just like that, not only do you not bear any responsibility toward your brothers and sisters who actually are. Um, but you can turn scripture on its side to benefit you yet again. And so I see that tendency right now in our culture when Christians constantly refer to themselves um, as being martyred and being, um, you know, left out and sidelined and, and hated when in fact, it's not true. I'm um, just the, the whole sense of oppression there. The definition of oppression there is, is so fundamentally off base from its context, as you mentioned. I mean, we don't even know how to spell oppressed, you know, don't that's you, we're not oppressed by Hollywood. Everybody give me a break, right? That is, it's nonsense. But what it, what it does is it gives the church a free pass. 
It gives us a spiritual free pass to interpret scripture to our benefit yet again, yet again, um, while being able to turn a blind eye to everybody else. And so it's, it's no small mountain to climb here. It isn't. And tearing it down is hard and your fingers will get bloody and you do it. This is what, one of the things that I respect about you the most, not just your brilliant mind and your deep understanding of, of the word, but you put your feet where your mouth is. You know, you go, you walk to the places, you do the thing. You went to Charlottesville when it was dangerous, uh, terrifying, actually, where people are going to lose, we're going to have lots of life. Um, and you're there, you're at the Supreme Court and you are on the pilgrimage and you, you do what you say, you live what you believe. And it's really important. And, and I think that you're right, that this is the path that, that American Christians at least are going to have to take in order to find these deep waters of the gospel of God. And, but who wants to take them? Who wants to do that? We'd rather um, imagine that we are the victims of our own story and that God is here to bless us more you know, bless blessed people a little bit more than we've already been blessed. I think that people of European descent who were called white by the state lost a huge thing when they allowed themselves to be called white. They lost their soul. They lost their core because they allowed themselves to be defined by one thing, whether or not they had power. As their, their whole identity is, is connected to one thing, the capacity to have to exercise dominion on this land. And so if you are white and you are poor, there is deep, deep, deep shame there because you shouldn't be because you're white. You should be able to exercise dominion. And I think that's why, I think that's why um, MAGA caught hold. Like Mm. why they're thinking they need to make America great again. And I went to the Republican convention. Um, I was actually Mm. there. I'm not a Republican, but I was outside serving lemonade with the, with the nuns on the bus. Yes, I was. (laughs) Of course you were. Of course you did that. And doing a survey with the people (laughs) in the line and asking them when you say, let's make America great again. Or, you know, when you think Mm. we need to go back, what is the time that you want to go back to? Mm. I'm telling you, this is what they said. We need to go back before the new deal. We need to go back, yes, to the 1920s, the 1910s. Ladies, do we want to go back before women won the vote? Do we want to go back? Do we Mm. want to go back to that? Do we want to go back to the time when lynching was at an all-time high, when when there was when the Civil Rights Act had not been passed yet, the Voting Rights Act had not been passed yet, so there Mm. was no enforcement, and and when your entire identity revolves around that question about whether or Mm. not you have power then you will protect it to the death. But you see, the only reason why white people of of European descent um, are are left with only that is because they actually gave up their ethnicity to become white. That's right. They, Never they thought about go. it like that. They let go of their Irish heritage. They literally renounced mm. their German heritage in order to grab hold of, a, of an identity that had only to do with one thing, power. So what I, mm. so the challenge that I give people, both in my book, The Very Good Gospel, and also wherever I speak now, is mm. I give people a, now you want to put your feet, I'm telling you, I'm telling mm. your audience, your white audience, if you or your, mm-hmm. your audience that is deemed white by the state, if you mm. want to actually mm. change the world, do this. If you want to be an accomplice in the reconstruction of the kingdom of God, or maybe not even an accomplice in the reconstruction of the kingdom of God, if you want to partner with God in the bringing yes. of the kingdom on earth, then do this. Subvert the hierarchies of human, mm. be- a human belonging. That's good. And the way to do that, the most easy way for you to do that, at least at least long term, is when the census comes around to your door in 2020 hmm. and it tells you to check a box called white. Hmm. Don't do it. Wow. Instead, write in your ethnicity, which you will be able to do. Write hmm. in your ethnicity. Write in the truth. Don't allow hmm. your identity be identified as only connected to one question, whether or not you have power, Mm. which is what whiteness was created to do. But instead, put all your ethnicities, German, Irish, Mm. um, Mm. uh, if you have whatever, do your DNA. Mm. There's no excuse anymore. Go online, Ancestry, 23andMe, Mm. any, any Ancestry thing, do your DNA, find out 
who you are if you don't know. And write it all mm. in. And then what will happen is that we will have to find another way to, to we will mm. have to find another way to to distribute power in America because right now it's distributed. The census was the first and the most major way that resources are distributed. And in the very first oh. census, there was only one race, white. The other race was slave mm. in 1790. In the next census, it was white, black, slave, or free. And the next census mm. after that, it got a little more complicated. Now, today, there are like 50 races and, uh, that are, no joke, mm. that are actually, that are outlined in the, that you can choose in the census. And then you can also write stuff in. But the only one that has never changed in all these years since 1790 is white. Why That's do you think wild. that is? Because whiteness aggregates mm. European power. Wow. Gosh. And it, it creates a majority, a false majority. It is so interesting to think about a group of white people rejecting that label and saying, I'm Norwegian. I'm Norwegian American. I'm Norwegian American. Yeah. I'm German American. Like just even saying it out loud mm-hmm. levels the playing yeah. field. Wow. Um, I am so challenged by that and moved by it. And I, I love your, I love your theology and I love your advocacy because it's so deeply rooted in, in the gospel and in God's people and in his shalom and in his beautiful world where all blesses all. And I believe in it. I believe in that. You're saying words that I believe and I believe to be true. And I do not think we are beyond hope or help. I do not think we are beyond repentance and repair. I don't. I, I believe that the spirit of God is still willing to pour out on his people. If we are willing to do this hard, gritty work. And it is, it is Mm -hmm. because much will have to be shared right? Um, yeah. on, on my end, like much, much will have to be redistributed, yeah. um, reimagined. Yeah. Um, all the power, power positions are going to have to be, um, sort of recalibrated. And so, you know, mm-hmm. that's not easy work. It's not simply a work of the mind and heart. It's a work of systems mm-hmm. and society, but I don't think it's impossible. I really don't. And, um, I do think it's a challenge. And mm-hmm. this is, these are the conversations that to me begin to move the needle, um, that mm-hmm. start planting these ideas of, of shalom and of wholeness and restoration in the mind of a, of a Christ follower who has said, I, I, this is what I believe. These are the ways of Jesus that I want to follow. Um, and I mean, this is the real stuff. This is not yeah. the um, American version of it. This is not the prepackaged partisan morality based yeah. version of faith that yeah. I've been handed my whole entire life. Yeah. Um, and so what I want to say to you is this, you're a powerful prophet. You are a powerful teacher. You are leading in word and deed, just like Jesus did. And mm-hmm. I think he's anointed you. And I think you're very special and you're very gifted for this time. And mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm grateful to be on this planet with you at the same time. <laughs> and I want you to know that I'm listening I'm watching and paying attention. Um, I want the people that listen to me to listen to you. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I'm really, really proud and really, really glad to be your sister. Aww. I want to ask you one last question. Sure. Will you leave, will you leave everybody a, either a, a quote or an, from a spiritual leader who, who you love, who has moved and inspired you, mm-hmm. or, or it could be a scripture mm-hmm. um, that epitomizes your life's work. Yeah. Um, and what it means to you and how it is, it is fuel, um, for the engine of what God has created you to do. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in God's image. In the image of God, God created them male and female. God created them. That is at the heart, I believe, of the good news of the gospel. Literally heard and read that hundreds of times. And in the context of this conversation, it's just so powerful. Um, thank you, Lisa, for your time today, for your wisdom, um, and your leadership. I'm just so 
honored to know you and proud to work alongside of you. So for all my listeners, please accept my most sincere thanks um, for coming in here and preaching a word, mm-hmm. lady. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> preaching a word, uh, like your mouth on fire. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for, for asking me to be a part of this really important project that you're doing. And I'm excited. I'm excited uh, to see the, the response of your listeners. And honestly, I'm excited for 2020. I'm excited mm-hmm. for that moment yeah. when Christians across America make a decision about which box they'll check. I like this. I like this so much. And so everybody listening, I'm going to have all of Lisa's information up on my transcript, which is on my website at jenhatmaker.com. All of her books, all of her links, her website the upcoming pilgrimage, two spots left, somebody better snag them. Um, and, and really all the work that she does. So if you didn't catch it as she started dropping it, I will have it all in one place. Okay, sister. Thanks for being on today. Thank you, Jen. God bless. Okay. Wow. Right. Uh, this series is not meant to be fluffy and squishy. Um, it's not meant to reinforce really easy spiritual ideas. We've been spoon fed with a silver spoon. It's supposed to be provocative. It is supposed to be challenging. It is supposed to make us uncomfortable and push us. And, and I hope that it did that today. Um, I hope that some of the ideas really um, rubbed, right? Or made us stop and think or going to, going to spur on a conversation later um, with the people that we do life with and respect. And so um, I appreciate Lisa so much and her, her tenacity and her kind hearted spirit and her love for Jesus and for people. I mean, it's really, um, it's really, really a force. So like I mentioned, everything we mentioned today is going to be over on my website, jenhatmaker.com underneath podcast. You'll see this transcript, which by the way, is a great resource for you. If you're not using that, let me yet again, redirect you to that page. Um, we loaded up with bonus content and pictures and links, and obviously the transcription of the whole entire interview, if you want to read it, um, later. So anyway, use that resource guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being here. Um, thanks for being with me during the series too. I'm excited to bring you a wide array of spiritual voices. I mean, we are literally running the gamut. So, um, uh, stick with us on this series. I think you're going to be really challenged and moved. And as always, thank you for being really loyal and wonderful listeners. We appreciate your reviews. We appreciate your ratings. We definitely appreciate you subscribing, um, which just help. It just puts so much, um, gas in the tank for us. And so, um, we're also always listening to you. So let us know your ideas, your people, um, your feedback. We absolutely pay attention. Okay, you guys. So, have a great one. Thanks for being here and I'll see you next week. Hey guys, we're back for another segment of Jen's favorite things. This is the part of the show where I share about some wonderful companies that are producing amazing products and giving back to charitable organizations and really worthy nonprofits. Plus they have exclusive discounts and extras just for you our podcast listeners. So here are today's favorites. So bear soaps, the bear soap sampler pack is the perfect mother's day gift comes with four samples of their top selling handmade bars, all in this branded cotton bag. And it gives back to women. So use the code Jen Hatmaker 15 for 15% off at bear soaps.com. Allison and Aubrey is an affordable on-trend jewelry line by mother-daughter duo, Allison and Aubrey Lombatis, to encourage women to borrow and bond over their love of style and accessories. So get 15% off with code ForTheLove15 at AllisonAndAubrey.com. That's it for today's show. Hope you enjoyed this chat. Be sure to subscribe to my mom's podcast and give it a thumbs up rating if you like it. From the whole Hatmaker family, I hope you have a great week and see you next time.